Hello and Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to our Wonder Woman 1984 episode. Today is the 9th of January, but this episode was recorded on the 23rd of December of last year. So even though we do talk about America and the state of America right now, and particularly Trump, in our review of Wonder Woman 1984, there is no mention, obviously, of the fact that he tried to topple democracy by inciting a crowd to storm the Capitol this week. But some of the things that we do talk about seem eerily prescient. But then again, if you say that something bad is going to happen under Trump's watch, you're always going to be right. So we hope you enjoy the episode. And thank you again for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. Citizens of the world, I'm here to change your life. Anything you want, anything you dream of, you can have it. Look like you saw a ghost. Diana, look at you. It's like not one day has passed. I don't want to be like anyone. I want to be an apex predator. You've always had everything, while people like me have had nothing. Well, now it's my turn. Get used to it. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast with me, your host, Rob Daniel. And as always, I am very, very happy to say that I am joined by my resplendent co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. That sounded a bit ominous. (laughs) (laughs) Sounded like the ghost of Christmas yet to come, that did. Yes, but yeah, it is, it is the it is the time of year. Although, sorry, that sounded like the ghost of Christmas yet to come, the famously silent ghost. Yes, but how I would imagine that it would sound. It's a pleasure to be here. Why? What do you have to show me? What does my future have in store? But yes, you're right. He doesn't actually speak to see. <laughs> you're just basically saying, and, that, and I, I love the thought. I sounded like death from the Discworld series. Uh, yeah, I trust that that is what I meant. I've not actually read or seen any of those, so... <laughs> you haven't read any of the Discord series? Oh, no, tell a lie. I did read Mort, which I thought was all right. But, no, I just wasn't, wasn't really into fantasy. More At that age, I was more into Stephen King, so never got into Terry Pratchett. You don't have to pick one. It's not, <laughs> is it? What? Sorry, you didn't have to pick one. I know it might have felt like it at the time, but... Oh, no, no, I had a friend who adored the Discworld series and tried to get me to read all of them because he thought they were such a delight and he thought they were so funny and he thought they were kind of like the same humour as... Douglas Adams. Black Adder and stuff like that. And yes, indeed, and particularly Douglas Adams. And it's like, oh, great, great. And he would talk to me about them. and be like, oh, I just can't wait to read these. And then when I start reading them, it's like, I'm just not interested in this. Mort was the only one that I read the whole way through because I thought that had, actually that had a pretty good story about this kid who was Death's Apprentice. So I did read that one. Mort was the film that they would, um, was the book they kept trying to make into a film in the late 80s into the early 90s. And I think that Terry Gilliam was attached to it for quite a long time, but they could never crack it. It would be quite easy to do that film now. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that all these ones, I kind of know the titles because my mate just he just adored them and i think he just liked the extended universe of it luckily that didn't set the template for anything 
That's right. I mean, that's the thing is that it's weird that it was only Sky that ever adapted any Pratchett stuff because you think that he would be ripe for the big screen, but yeah, it never seemed to happen. I, th- I think the issue is it's almost the same as Douglas Adams, but as I you know, said a moment ago, because it's all in the prose. There's so much of the humour and the characterization comes through the prose that either it means you end up with Stephen Fry doing a voiceover, doing like doing narration, reading excerpts from the guide, or you just kind of scrapple that and try and find a different way to convey the humour. It's a bit of a hiding to nothing. Yes, I would imagine that's right. I mean, they are much beloved books, so it would be if you can't nail the particular humour and get the prose to translate to screen, then you'll just be disappointing the fans and not really winning over any new convert. So yes, and I'd also like to say that's, I think that's the reason, or this is the reason why our audiences love us so much, because they've come to listen to Wonder Woman 84, our verdict's about that, and they've got some Terry Pratchett. I mean, is there nothing that we don't have an opinion on? Well, you know, we've been talking about an extended universe. And of course, we're segueing into the DC extended universe. Which, of course, is an extended universe that they just can't seem to get right. And they've actually found a lot more success in having standalone movies. And Wonder Woman 84, or Wonder Woman 1984, or WW84... It seems to have so many titles wherever you look. And WW84, this is a movie that sounds like a postcode, but anyway, this is the movie that we'll be talking about today. Of course, this was the film that was supposed to come out, I think, in the summer. It was then moved back to the winter because of the pandemic. Um, It was supposed to come out the 16th of December. And me and you and our friend Adrian, who's been on the podcast, were all ready to go to the IMAX. And then we thought, should we just hold off actually booking the tickets until much closer to the day, like as in the day before? And the day before, there was an announcement that London was going into tier three and that everything was going to pretty much lock down and that all the cinemas would be closed. So this is now going straight to premiere rental in, I think, the middle of January. But you and I were very lucky. You sent me a text yesterday saying, check your email. And I checked my email and Warner Brothers had very, very nicely sent us a for your consideration screener link for WW84. And I have to admit, when I saw that in my inbox, I was very happy indeed. Admittedly, I did actually see it in the cinema. Did you? Yeah, well, because up until recently, or until the 26th, Waverley isn't in lockdown. So I went to uh, to the Horsham Everyman with my dad. Oh, I completely forgot, actually, that there was a gap. Okay, then, well, let's save your experiences of that. So I take it that you've only seen it at the cinema, you haven't watched the link yet? No, I I haven't admittedly watched it at home. Well, it's going to be really interesting then, because I watched it this morning. And it turns out I was so excited to watch Wonder Woman 84... WW84, that I actually had a dream about it last night that I was watching the film. And in my dream, I was slightly disappointed by what was happening. And let's just quickly give the synopsis of the movie and then we can go into what we thought about it. The IMDb synopsis for 19, uh, <laughs> Wonder Woman <laughs> 1984. God. Rewind to the 1980s as Wonder Woman's next big screen adventure finds her facing two all new foes, Max Lord and the Cheetah. I mean, yeah, kind of. Basically sums up the plot in a breathless sort of way that sounds a bit like it was written in the 80s itself. So I got up this morning at six o'clock, having had my dream that I watched Wonder Woman 84 and it had been a disappointment, but I was still very excited when I woke up and I made my breakfast and I settled in front of my computer and I put it on 
and I watched it. And I have to say, I think the Warner Brothers must be kicking themselves that they released Tenet in the cinemas in August and not Wonder Woman, because I think this film would have gone down so much better with audiences than the audiences who went to Tenet. And I just keep hearing friends talk about their experiences of watching Tenet and saying it was just so boring. And some of them left halfway through. They just couldn't stand it. The two audiences I saw it with were both very, very muted. And this one, I thought, cards on the table. I had a really good time with this film. It's big and it's sprawling and there are lots of loose ends. And you get the impression that there were lots of things lots of subplots that were lifted out because the film was running long. But I really got into the adventure of this movie and got into the heart of it. It's quite a grand operatic film in just terms of the sweep and the huge emotions that it goes for. I was very pleasantly surprised when it ended and I thought, oh, that was much better than I dreamed it would be. I had a great time with Wonder Woman. How about you? I really got on with it. I do think it's at least 20 minutes too long. It is a two and a half hour film. Then again, it's got a lot of story and a lot of character to encompass. And at a certain point, I did have a moment in it where I thought, oh no, is this going to turn out to be sort of the amazing Spider-Man 2? Is this going to be one of those things where it's like, oh no, two villains is definitely going to be unmanageable in the, well, you know, it's the amazing Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3 issue. But for the most part, I know I really got on with it. Actually, I think it had a really strong through line that actually some sort of thematic resonance and, and relevance to it. Yeah, that was a thing that really surprised me about it is what a political film this is. So the film, not to give away too much of the plot, but one of the villains, Max Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, who is the Mandalorian. Yeah, man of the moment, Pedro Pascal. Yeah. So he's a figure who emerges in the 1980s as this incredibly successful businessman um, who tells everyone that he can help everyone just achieve their dreams if they just believe in what he says. And if they just follow him, then they will have everything that they desire. And all they need to do is give him their money and he will turn it into a fortune for them because he's such a great businessman. And then it comes to if you just want something hard enough and if you just wish for it, then it can happen for you and I can make that happen. And it's basically a snake oil salesman. And he's a blonde haired businessman in the 1980s who craves a lot of power and basically sells people on a huge lie. I mean, it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to realise what that's an analogue for uh, or who that's an analogue for. And it really was like, oh, wow, this is just such a political film in terms of this is all about Trump, right? And um, I, I, I think the key difference is that, to, at least to some degree, Max Lord is, is intended to be vaguely sympathetic. Well, that's the really interesting thing about this is that Trump doesn't work in a film because he's not interesting in a superhero movie if you just lift and shift Trump because he's so one note. There is no depth or shading to him. And that was the really interesting thing about this is that you can see that there is a conflict in this character and that even though, yeah, he is clearly modelled on Trump, they can't just do Trump because he just has the depth of a puddle. So therefore they have to humanise him. That's the thing, you, you can't give Trump, you know, there's nothing in Trump that suggests them the possibility of a redemptive arc. That's right. And I thought that's the really interesting thing here. The other really, really interesting thing here, and it's like I thought I love the casting of Pedro Pascal a Chilean actor, <laughs> and they've basically cast him as Trump. And I thought, that must be to annoy Trump, that you have a South American come into this movie and play his analogue. That's just going to wind him up. And I just thought that was a really, really nice bit of casting. He was good in the role, but that did make me laugh. 
And then you've got Kristen Wiig as Barbara Minerva, who becomes, who's basically, at least in her origin story, essentially Catwoman from Batman Returns. She's a lot of things, actually. She is definitely Catwoman from Batman Returns. She is this... And she's Electro from, from The Amazing Spider-Man 2. She is. She also reminded me of the Riddler from Batman Forever, Jim Carrey's character. There's a moment at the beginning when she walks in and she's dropping things and she's just all over the place and she's kind of talking to herself. And I thought, well, is that actually getting a, a touch of Carrey's The Riddler here as well? And she also reminded me of Gus, the Richard Pryor character from Superman 3. So it seemed like she was all the misfits from all the superhero films of the 80s, yeah, into the 90s, combined into one. But yeah, there was a lot of Catwoman in there as well, with her being Stormhouse, basically. It's kind of trodden on by everyone, and no one actually remembers her. And then she gets this opportunity to become what she's always wanted to be, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly charismatic and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it was interesting that the villains did have a nice emotional arc. This seemed to be a film that went out of its way to make sure that everyone had an emotional arc and that everyone was emotionally shaded, which I think is another reason why it runs two and a half hours. But it just worked, I thought. The characterization really did work for me. So, And I, I do love how unabashedly, cheesily, deliberately 80s the opening of the film is. There's a bank robber in a hostage situation in this mall. Yeah. And everybody's wearing shoulder pads and it's got like in a great sort of 80s soundtrack and you've got Wonder Woman zipping around with a lasso of truth. And it's like, yep, this feels very superficially, but very recognisably 80s. And also that it was superficially 80s. I thought it was one of those things where it didn't want to lay on all of the 80s accoutrements. So you didn't have you know, movie posters for Gremlins or anything like that. You didn't have like MTV logos. I mean, there was, uh, what was there? JC Penny. you saw the logo for that at one point. But it seemed to be that... I think Warner Brothers realised that they might have slightly overdone their cross-franchising, their cross-promotional tie-ins in Ready Player One, and they've just gone, we're not doing that anymore. That's right. It's like, we just want to put like a bit of seasoning in. We don't want to just put everything into the stew and have it be um, slightly too zesty, maybe. Yeah, so this why I actually thought that the 80s stuff in this was quite good, because, of course, it's in the trailer. We won't spoil how he comes back, but Steve Trevor, the Chris Pine character from the first movie... So Wonder Woman's love interest does make a return in this film. And I just like those moments when he was just in awe of things that we now look at as really, really primitive technology. Parachute pants. And the parachute pants, that's right. Does, does everyone parachute? Is that, you know? Yeah, yeah. TV monitors and stuff like that. But there was something else actually that was I thought was really funny that he was like a bum bag, I think it was. Um... He insists on wearing the fanny pack. That's right. Yeah, so I thought that was really, really nicely done as well. But there were things in there, like at the beginning, it seems to set up that it's going the Batman route because they keep referring to the mysterious female saviour and Wonder Woman takes out all the video cameras when she's in the mall. And it seemed to be that she's trying to keep her identity a secret, but that just seems to get dropped a bit later on when the film just couldn't really have time for that. There's a, an element here of wishing and what people really want. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was that the way that people were acting was very much like now, where people were all just wishing for things that were very self-centred. And I thought, well, that's interesting that you know, no one's wishing for crops in Africa, because, of course, this was a, the time that we had the famine, or that there was a famine in Africa. So this was the year of Band-Aid. Well, I, I, guess, I guess it's possible that maybe somebody did wish for that, but it, it wasn't one of the more dramatic elements to... Uh... And that's the thing, because it's a film that is, is also really deeply involved in the politics of the 1980s. 
as you say, it's an unexpectedly political film. Yeah, that's right. But I did think just the venality of what everyone was wishing for did seem much more a comment on now rather than the 80s. But I thought it still worked because it's like, well, it, to be honest, it really was the 80s where this new level of greed was really birthed. And you suddenly had the wealthy becoming super wealthy and realising actually just how much wealth they could accrue, particularly during the Reagan years where he cut so much tax for the rich that they were suddenly just holding on to so much more of their wealth. So I thought it kind of made sense that even though everyone seems to be wishing in a very, very selfish way, it still made sense that it was coming from the 80s because that was the decade that really birthed everything that we have, that we hate now, including Donald Trump. And this film is, at times, very kind of like Wolf of Wall Street in the basic philosophy of some of the characters, not in terms of the sexual content. And of course, sort of Gordon Gecko as well. Yeah, of course. Yes, indeed, with Wall Street, like a few years later, with the whole greed is good philosophy. Yeah, so there was all these things going on in there, and it, and it really did have just this massive sweep to it that could be really cheesy. But I thought, because it was just really going for it, as you said, in an unabashed way, I thought, actually, this is working really well. I think a lot of the time, the grand emotional sweep is papering over some of uh, the story cracks and also some of the watchability of the actors also does that as well. I mean, it'd be interesting to watch it on a second viewing to see just how much of that sweep remains. But there were, I have to admit, there were some points where um, I was kind of like misting up a little bit. There's, uh, I can't really spoil it because there were scenes towards the end, but there's a very big scene where Wonder Woman discovers a new ability. Yeah, that really, really got to me because it comes after a very, very emotional scene as well. I can't remember if that's an ability that she uses in either Batman v Superman or Justice League. No, this was the first time that she... I mean, she has that ability, presumably, in those films, given that they take place, you know, 30 years later. That's a very good point, yeah, but I don't think that she does. And that's the other thing I was going to say about this, is that it's interesting because it's kind of caught between... So it was a sequel to Wonder Woman and... Aquaman was the first of the DC films that really said, actually, we're not going to do the extended universe thing that much in this one. We're just going to tell a story. Had Aquaman come out before Wonder Woman? No, Aquaman came out after Wonder Woman, because I think Aquaman was was 2018. I think Wonder Woman was 2017. Yes, you're right, yeah. And then it was Shazam. So actually, it was was Wonder Woman that really set the template of how DC realised they could make these movies work, which is don't try to do an extended universe. Because Wonder Woman, of course, was pretty much a standalone movie. You didn't have to see any of the other films to understand what was happening. And it was also a very, very close template remake of Superman, which is not a bad thing because, you know, the original Superman from 78 is one of the great superhero films. And there's definitely some of that, certainly in the first act of uh, WW 1984, there's a strong original Superman vibe. Yeah, absolutely, because it is just nice to watch her just doing her day-to-day superhero stuff. And this one is like, yeah, so it has to work as a sequel to the first Wonder Woman, which I thought it did really well. And then it also has to kind of try and be part of the extended universe. But as far as I could see, it wasn't really that bothered about it. It wasn't, it didn't seem to be setting up anything for a film with all the Justice League in it to then carry on and pick up. It just seemed as if it was just intent on being a sequel to Wonder Woman rather than, yeah, looking ahead to Justice League. That's how I thought of it. What about you? Yeah, so the, apart from obviously um, bringing back Steve Trevor, he's interested in different things. Because I think also, you know, the the original Wonder Woman film was political insofar as it unambiguously dealing with the politics of the uh, the First World War, that looming threat. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see, you know, if and when, what the, what a third film would look like. Would you presumably, I guess, do a present-day Wonder Woman film? I don't think the character is 
dependent on a historical setting. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that the character of Wonder Woman was like a World War II superhero, definitely during the Linda Carter first season of Wonder Woman, the um, TV show from the late 70s. That was World War II. And then they chose to go with World War One for the film. And this one, of course, is, as you said, deals with the politics and all the tensions of the 1980s. So it will be interesting to see what a Wonder Woman film that doesn't have a huge conflict setting. Yes, I think setting Wonder Woman in the present day, it would be very easy to avoid a conflict setting. <laughs> Thank God we currently live in a time where there isn't much conflict or, you know, events of historical significance going on. <laughs> but all the stuff that's happening now, this is a very, very quiet and locked in apocalypse. It's like, in the 1980s, the big fear was nuclear war. I mean, I remember as a kid being absolutely fascinated and absolutely terrified by the prospect of nuclear war. And nuclear weapons were often mentioned in the nightly news. And you had Reagan saying that he thought that a nuclear war was winnable. And there was lots of saber rattling that was happening, particularly around 1981-ish to about 1985. Whereas now the conflict is like, yeah, there isn't, touch wood, a huge war happening. So and it's actually like a cultural war and like an ideological war that's kind of been fought on the internet. So yeah, it will be interesting to see what the next big threat for Wonder Woman to resolve is going to be. And hopefully they do keep it earthbound because if it's aliens, it'd be like, I'm not interested in that. I, I much more like it when she's having to deal with humankind's frailties and their weaknesses rather than aliens. Yeah, and all the acting I thought was great in this. Yeah, so especially Gal Gadot's great. Just had that sort of that real sense of integrity and her um, chemistry with Chris Pine, who's just charming in absolutely anything that he's in. And also, you know, the villains, Max Lord, Pedro Pascal, who, you know, he's obviously got the, you know, all the glamour and the bluster and the, you know, I can tell you your dreams. But he also captures the kind of sense of holiness and seediness and desperation behind that. And Kristen Wiig, as Minerva, has an interesting sort of character arc. You say going from the wallflower sort of geeky to the to a villain to somebody who you know has been given a taste of power and has not reacted well to it that's right and i was actually really disappointed that it was revealed in the trailer that she becomes villainous because i thought that would have been a nice surprise but it's all in the trailer and it's like oh, yeah, yeah. I, thought, I think there's enough of this film that you don't need to put that in the trailer but of course they always stick it in the trailer there were a couple of little gaffes that i saw Piccadilly Circus didn't have a TV screen in 1984, <laughs> so there was no Jumbotron screen. But obviously, uh, apart from that, sorry, I was about to say, apart from that, the film is entirely historically accurate. <laughs> yeah, indeed. There's a scene where a character gets thrown into a UPS truck or something, and then um, a few shots later, you see the truck in the background and it doesn't have a dent in it anymore. And I thought, mm, okay, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> I'm enjoying this film enough that I don't mind that sort of thing. Yeah, I completely agree with you that all the performances were great. And Gal Gadot, she is Wonder Woman. She inhabits that role so well. And you just get the just that real sense of integrity about her. And she can sell this very broad strokes character so well. So, well, just think, because earlier this year, Gal, you were a bit of a supervillain with that horrible Imagine video, weren't you? <laughs> when you and all your millionaire Hollywood friends told us that it's all going to be all right. We should, we should imagine a world without wealth and inequality, yeah. That's right, because it was so misjudged that everyone stopped liking you for a bit. But you've ended the year as um, this wonderful portrayal in this film. It's interesting because the film is really, really hopeful in a way that might seem slightly naive with all the things that are happening, particularly in America right now. But it's like, do you know what? I would rather have naive optimism than more Zack Snyder misery. 
So thank you very much for that. Um, and the action was good as well, I thought. There were some shots that I thought the effects bit kind of wobbly, but overall I thought that the action worked really well, particularly that scene on the desert road with the trucks, moments of which reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, that's exactly a vibe. the vibe that I got. I've literally got notes written down about that scene saying Raiders of the Lost Ark. And all, and also, you know, with Indy, or Wonder Woman in this case, hanging off the uh, side of the trucks. Um, oh, I was going to make a point, and it's just completely gone out of my head. But yeah, sorry, you, you were saying about, you know, that you think that um, obviously Warners uh, and uh, the DCEU should head in this direction rather than the grim, dark misery fest that is Zack Snyder's contribution. <laughs> saying that, you you know that you know that the next film that we get from them is the extended or the recut Justice League, right? I was thinking that, but that seems an anomaly now because this film, of course, like yeah, should have been out so long ago. And is Justice League still going to be a film, or is it going to be a series? Because it seems to be that it's going to be four hours long or something. So they were talking about cutting it into hour long episodes for HBO Max. I've no idea what's happening with that now. Well, it's, it's, it's going to HBO Max anyway. I don't know whether or not it will get a theatrical. But ultimately, you know... It's just for HBO Max, I think, yeah. Yep, strong play to them saying that, you know, in territories where theatricals are not currently available, everything will go straight to HBO Max. And in territories where it is, there'll be either be limited theatrical or day and date. And in doing so, they basically seems like they made that announcement without really telling any of their creatives. Yeah, so I think that the Christopher Nolan love affair with Warner Brothers has ended... It'll be interesting to see if that could be reconciled. Yeah, and the idea of watching Dune on your telly, it's like, oh, I do hope I get a chance to see this at the cinema. Because to be honest, I would really have liked to have seen Wonder Woman 84 at the cinema in IMAX. Uh, and hopefully they will. And I don't, to be completely honest, I don't think it's going to be any time before the summer, before things go back to normal or anything approaching normal. But hopefully when it does, the IMAX will do some limited engagements for these films that have been shot in IMAX that haven't been able to be shown, because this is one that I would definitely go and see in IMAX. I mean, how did it play on a big screen? Um, yeah, it was a, it was a decent side screen. It wasn't massive. It was the Everyman Horsham. Very nice chain. Nice big comfy seats. Really quite socially distanced. They bring, you know, food and drink at the beginning, you know, Ooh. of the film. Dad and I both sat there with a pint and some popcorn. And it was nice. In all fairness, like, you know, at this point, I don't really have any objectivity about the cinema experience versus the home experience. (laughs) Because every time I go to the cinema, it's just like, ooh, cinema, big screen. It can be anything. I don't care. And how many people were in the cinema when you saw this? Because this was the first big film that had been released in the cinema in months. It was crowded, not like packed, but enough so that you kind of, it seemed to justify the cinema being open from that perspective. And it was one that, I mean, in terms of social distancing, it was as kind of full as it could be, do you think? Or Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is that, of course, it would be, oh, it'd be so easy to go back to the cinema. We will at some point, that'll be fine. But yeah, so this was a pleasant surprise. It's one of those where, at the end of the film, I was on a real high. And then when I thought about it a bit more after about half hour, I thought, okay, there were issues with that film in terms of the story. And, there's, and it does seem as if they raise some things and drop some things, because even at two and a half hours, they had set themselves quite a big tale to tell. But in just in terms of the enjoyability of it, the uh, the sweep of it, just the optimism of it, I just so wish they'd gone with this one instead of Tenet because the audience, I think, would have been so much more on board for this sort of emotional ride, particularly during this year. This would have been a film that would have had much better word of mouth and would have, I think, got people to go into cinemas and been comfortable with that decision. 
And as we know that, yeah, there hasn't really been any evidence that there's been a massive outbreak of coronavirus that's come from a cinema so or from the theatre. So it does seem as if they're pretty safe places to go and that yeah, social distancing rules are observed. So um, to paraphrase Walk Hard, wrong film got chosen. <laughs> wrong film got chosen. Okay, then, well, if there's nothing else to say about Wonder Woman, let's wrap it up here. So as I say, I really do hope there is a third Wonder Woman. You just can't say right now, because of course, this is going to go straight to HBO Max in the States. It's going to be a premiere VOD title here. So it probably costs around 20 quid or something like that to rent initially. So yeah, in terms of how much money this makes, it's like it won't be anything like the money that Wonder Woman made or that any of the blockbusters from the last couple of years have made. But hopefully they think there's enough value and mileage in this character to give a, a third outing. We will see. Yeah, I, you know, I hope that the studio, I think the studios that can are taking the attitude of this year, potentially next year, it, uh, kind of like, you know, the, the performance of a film does not reflect its potential, uh, even if uh, one of the major blockbusters doesn't do as well as it would have done previously. What was the year of, of blockbuster Mageddon? It was 2017. Do you remember 2017? That was the Wonder Woman came out. Yeah, well, yeah, the year, the year Wonder Woman came out. I think Wonder Woman caught the tail of it, and it had like Fast and Furious Eight, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, King Arthur, Alien Covenant, New Parts of the Caribbean, Wonder Woman, The Mummy. It was the, it was the year where there was like a blockbuster pretty much every week. Ghost in the Shell. It was a very odd year because it was one of those that just by default some of these are going to fail. Some of these in a year where things were slightly more evenly paced, like Transformers: The Last Knight, Despicable Me. Some of these are going to do badly that might otherwise have done okay. Spider-Man Homecoming, Planet the, uh, War for the Planet of the Apes, Dunkirk, Dark Tower, Blade Runner, Thor Ragnarok. It was a big year. Justice League, it was a daft year just in terms of the sheer number of blockbusters coming out. But Wonder Woman did do well, didn't it? Because I think it did about 800 million worldwide, which was like a massive surprise to them. Because let's not forget, the Warner Brothers had basically kind of written off Wonder Woman before it came out because they were merchandising Harley Quinn Suicide Squad merchandise, which I think came out, was it the previous year? They were merchandising that character still, I think at a rate of something like two to one, I read, um, as opposed to Wonder Woman. At the time that Wonder Woman, the film came out, they just didn't have that much faith in the um, commercial appeal of this character, it seemed. And then, of course, yeah, Wonder Woman comes out and it actually strikes a real nerve always tries to record with people yes and then they suddenly realize oh no we do have like a merchandising thing here as well it's like well yeah why didn't you realize that to begin with instead of just trying to sell people like off-brand harley quinn hot topic inflatable baseball bats yeah and also it has to be said like yeah let's face it harley quinn in suicide squad is a fucked up thing to merchandise particularly to kids, it's like, okay. Um, whereas Wonder Woman is like, well, shouldn't, is, oh, this is just the, this is the kind of thing you should, I think, be offering as like a much more interesting and positive character to be getting behind. And there's a t-shirt that I saw that I thought, well, I can't wear that, obviously, but it's a really, really good t-shirt. It's a drawing of Wonder Woman, like you're leaping into action and it says, fight like a girl. And I thought, oh, that's very clever. Well, mate, one, one of the good things about the pandemic is you can wear that t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, just not I mean, you can wear it anyway. But now particularly, you can wear that. Do you know what? Oh my God, that could be a Christmas present to myself. Okay, then, well, on that sartorial note, let's wrap it up. Yes, when Wonder Woman comes out in mid-January, it is well worth a look. It's a real pick-me-up film, so hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as we did. So shall we do plugs to finish? Yes, you can find me online uh, on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. 
Uh, find my writing online at uh, com. So you can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. You can find me on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Rob Dan. And if you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, you can go to at Movie Robcast and you can find the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, as I'm sure you have done already, if you're listening to this. Also, and yeah, we always get to do this, but if you like what you hear, then why not leave us a review or just give us a rating? They are both much appreciated and they really help the podcast. So thank you very much. So yeah, so this is going to be an episode that goes out after the end of year review. So God knows what we'll be talking about in the next episode. Yeah, oh blimey, what is coming up? Well, Nomadland. Yes, that would be a good one to do because that was a really, really good film that we saw at the London Film Festival. Well, we will be talking to you about something, uh, I'm sure, So, because um, there will be some films released next year, right? But for now, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for listening. And we will talk to you again very, very soon. Parachute pants? Yeah. Um... Does, it, does everybody parachute now? <laughs>